Yep. Florence had been taking fertility pills, and she and Nathan had hit the jackpot. Now y'all without sin can cast the first stone. But we thought it was unfair that some should have so many while others should have so few. With the benefit of hindsight, maybe it wasn't such a hot idea. But at the time, his little plan seemed like the solution to all our problems and the answer to all our prayers. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multi Lena, uh, multi you know this multi You're stupid minds. Stupid, stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can, and sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly. On this show, we like to go a little bit beyond good or bad. You'll you'll never find us doing that rating system. Does it get five stars or four stars? None of that nonsense. We like to go a little deeper, you know, understand the who's and why's and where's, that type of thing. Now, it seems that these days, everything has to be a franchise, and every movie is a sequel or a remake, you know? So I'm thankful we have people like the Coen brothers, whose work is always original, and and it varies in styles from flick to flick. The pair seem to be dedicated to doing their films their own way and never allow studio interference to influence their vision. From the script to the actors to the final edit, it's all 100% Cohen. Raising Arizona was a 1987 comedy written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It stars Nicolas Cage, Holly Hunter, Trey Wilson, William Forsythe, John Goodman, Francis McDormand, Sam McMurray, and Randall Tex Cobb. It was the Coen Brothers' second feature. But before we get into Raising Arizona, let's talk a little bit about who these men are. Joel was born on November 29, 1954, and Ethan on September 21, 1957, and they grew up in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. During Minnesota's cold winter months, the pair often spent time watching old movies on TV. They were also into novels by authors like Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, and James Kane. As young boys, they started their own lawn mowing business in order to purchase a Super 8 film camera to begin making short films around the neighborhood. Eventually, Joel would go on to study film at New York University, while Ethan studied philosophy at Princeton. After college, Joel worked as a production assistant on a variety of industrial films and music videos. He met another young director named Sam Raimi, and worked as an assistant editor on Sam's first feature, The Evil Dead, and it was there he learned the art of film editing. Joel and Ethan eventually teamed up and began writing together. Now, seeing the way Raimi had made his first independent film by getting anyone with money to invest, they thought they could do the same. They wrote a script about murder and lies and misunderstanding and all that, basically a film noir, and began looking for money. Now, Raimi had given them some advice. He told them that if you call someone and say you need money to make a film, they're most likely going to hang up. But if you call them and say, we have a film we want to show you, a small percentage will invite you into their homes to see it. 
Now, for Evil Dead, Sam shot a small portion of his film in 8mm to show prospective investors, while the Coens did something a bit different. They shot in 35mm a trailer for a film that didn't exist yet. The trailer starred Bruce Campbell. At first, they raised $150,000, and by the end, almost $750,000. Three quarters of a million dollars. I find that amazing. And that was 1980s money. Now, while it might seem the brothers' love of noir had a lot to do with the writing of the script, they were thinking more of a horror film and what they could shoot for cheap. At the time, a lot of young filmmakers, like Sam Raimi, were making horror films, so it seemed reasonable to follow that route. From there, they looked at what they could do cheaply, like with one room and a couple of actors. But of course, as they worked on the script, it got away from horror and a little more into a murder-crime story. To play the lead in the film, they approached an old friend of theirs who was doing a play in New York, Holly Hunter. Holly had already been committed to another play, so she had to pass. She had a roommate at the time named Frances McDormand, and Holly convinced her to go audition. McDormand, who had no real acting experience, claims that the reason why she looked so shocked throughout Blood Simple is that she was still in shock for getting the part. McDormand would end up marrying Joel Cohen in 1984 and are still together today. Happily, I'm sure. A few more people from Blood Simple that would go on to work on Raising Arizona was the film's composer, Carter Burwell. Carter would go on to do many of the Coen Brothers' films. And also there was a young cinematographer named Barry Sonnenfeld. Barry would go on, of course, to be a successful director with films like the first two Adams Family movies and the Men in Black trilogy. Blood Simple took a lot of time to catch on. After being turned down by everyone, the Coens, who were about ready to give up, eventually entered it in the Toronto Film Festival, and from there things began to happen. It was eventually picked up by Circle Films. The film ended up making a profit, and that was the number one priority of the pair because they wanted to pay back the investors. Their second priority was to put themselves in a position to do a second film. After they worked with Sam Raimi on his follow-up to The Evil Dead called Crime Wave in 1985, in which they co-wrote with Sam, they were ready to make their next feature. Now, before I get into that, I thought I'd talk about the first time I saw Raisin, Arizona. At the time, I had no idea who the Coen brothers were. I don't even think I knew who Nick Cage was, and definitely not Holly Hunter. I might have known John Goodman because I had seen David Byrne's True Stories, which was his first big role. Now, as I've mentioned before, I used to work for a company that duplicated videotapes. For a short time, I was the lead in an operation that did special packaging for stores like 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven, for you younger kids, or people outside the U.S., was a chain of convenience stores. I think there's still some around, right? Anyway, I worked second shift from 4 p.m. till midnight, or something like that. Every once in a while, we had a bit of a slow time, so me and the gang would watch a movie that was laying around. One night, someone put on the film Raising Arizona. When I think of it, I don't know if it was something I wanted to see or just something someone else suggested. I'm not really sure. Now, me being someone who loves the strange and unusual, I fell in love with this movie right away. Yeah, some of the unusual camera angles and shots, 
are perhaps a bit unnecessary from a storytelling point of view, but whatever, it was great fun. I mean, how many films wait for 11 minutes before the opening credits? And how many times do you get to see a POV shot of a baby falling on Nick Cage's butt? And the music, the Pete Seeger-style yodeling. Strange, but somehow fitting. But here's the thing about the camera work. It wasn't really unnecessary. It's part of the comedy. You have funny characters, funny situations, funny dialogue, and funny camera work. And they all come together for a fantastic experience. As Simon Pegg put it, Raisin' Arizona was a living, breathing Looney Tunes cartoon. Of course, when the next Coen Brothers film came out, I expected another wacky comedy and was surprised by Miller's Crossing. Another left turn by these two men who refused to be pigeonholed into any style. Eventually, after finishing Blood Simple, we wanted to make something completely different, Ethan explained. We didn't know what, but we wanted it to be funny with a quicker rhythm. We also wanted to employ Holly Hunter, a long-standing friend. Originally, they wanted to make the Hudsucker proxy, but they couldn't get enough money to do it right, so instead came up with Raising Arizona. In fact, if you look at the patches M. Emmett Walsh and Nicolas Cage are wearing while at work, it says Hudsucker. One of the things I find amazing about how this film came together was when they took the script to Circle Films, the company gave them their approval and a budget of $6 million. But they also gave them complete creative control, including Final Cut. Keep in mind, this was not only their second film, but their first to be financed by a studio. On top of that, Circle Films only put up half the money. The other came from 20th Century Fox, who agreed to distribute the film. Again, they gave the brothers complete control. No one gets final cut at that stage of their career. But they did. And they've worked that way ever since. The idea is, give us the money to make the movie and let us make it. And if you don't like it, we'll get the money from somewhere else. My name is H.I. McDonough. Call me high. Now, during the filming, I've read that Nicolas Cage became a bit of a problem. In one interview, he said he auditioned about 10 times, and in others, he said about 20 times. The brothers were never quite sure if he was right for the part. Cage later said that during auditions, the brothers would laugh at what he was doing, but would tell him later they didn't understand why. But during the filming, Cage became frustrated that the Coen brothers ignored all his ideas. You see, the Coens are very particular about their craft. Once they finalize the script, it's done, and it almost never changes. There's no rewrites and such. And then they storyboard everything, down to the last detail. And they are known for sticking to their vision. So Cage comes in with all these grand ideas. I mean, he's the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola. But Joel and Ethan were not interested. Apparently, Cage continued throughout the film. But he later said, Joel and Ethan have a very strong vision, and I've learned how difficult it is to accept another artist's vision. They have an autocratic nature. Later, however, Cage said making the film was a wonderful experience. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby high. They got more than they can handle. Oh, honey, Don't I... you come back here without a baby. Playing Nick's wife in the film is the wonderful Holly Hunter in her first starring role. 
Holly was born in 1958 in Converse, Georgia. Did you know that she's deaf in her left ear? When they wrote the part, they had Holly in mind. She had been in a few films before, like The Burning from 1981 and a TV movie called Spengali in 1983. At the time, she was much more concerned with her stage career. I can't say enough good things about her in this film. She is both crazed and sympathetic at the same time. I mean, her wanting of a child gets to the point of insanity in which she almost gives up on life. And of course, that leads to the main plot of the film. Now, at one point during the filming, the press in Arizona got a hold of the script and claimed that the Coens were depicting the people of Arizona as hicks with bad taste in clothes. Ethan responded by saying, Of course it's not accurate. It's not supposed to be. It's all made up. It's an Arizona of the mind. So what is Raising Arizona? Nick Cage plays H.I. McDonough, whom everybody calls High, a man who is in and out of prison due to his tendency to rob convenience stores. Each time he's arrested, his mugshot is taken by a young woman, a prison guard named Ed. Turn to the right! What kind of name is Ed for a pretty thing like you? Short boy, Edwina, turn to the right! You're a flower, you are. Just a little desert flower. High takes an immediate liking to Ed. At one of these encounters, Ed is crying and tells High that her fiancé had dumped her for another woman. Son bitch. Don't forget his phone call, Ed. Tell him I think he's a damn fool, Ed. You tell him I said so, H.I. McDonough. And if he wants to discuss it, he knows where to find me. In the Maricopa County Maximum Security Correctional Facility for Men, State Farm Road, number 31, Tempe, Arizona. I'll be waiting. I'll be waiting. Finally, when High is let out of prison for the last time, he proposes to her and she accepts. The two are married and live in a mobile home in the desert. High, now an honest man, gets a factory job. Everything is going fine until Ed decides they should have a child, or as High puts it, a critter. But the thing is, it turns out she's unable to conceive. Hi. I'm barren. At first, I didn't believe it, that this woman, who looked as fertile as the Tennessee Valley, could not bear children. But the doctor explained that her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. When the Arizona Quints are born, quintuplet boys to a man named Nathan Arizona, who owns a chain of stores that sells unpainted furniture, they decide it's unfair that one should have so many while others have so few. So they take one of the boys, probably Nathan Jr. On top of that, two brothers escape from prison, Gail and Evel Snotes. They are friends of High's and come to their trailer and begin living there. Now, Ed and High also have two friends, Glenn and Dot, who have a lot of children and want more. Glenn is High's boss, but fires High after High assaults him. And if that wasn't enough, there's a bounty hunter named Leonard Smalls, a mysterious biker who High dreams about and calls the lone biker of the apocalypse. Smalls is searching for the child. So that's your basic setup. Like always, I'm not going to give too much away, though I really hope you've seen this movie. 
But now it's time for me to take a break. And since I'm doing the show all by myself today, I'll do my own break. You know, many times when I do this, I have Nancy or Russell helping me out. But sometimes, for one reason or another, they're unable to contribute. For those days, I've come up with something new. I'm going to call it what I've been watching this week or something. I don't know. Haven't really worked out a name yet. But the idea is, since the show usually focuses on older films, I'd talk about a more recent film I've seen. And what I watched this week was what may turn out to be a modern-day classic. I'm not sure about that. It's a little film that's on the Roku channel called Weird, the Al Yankovic story. It stars Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al. It also has Rain Wilson as Dr. Demento, Evan Rachel Wood as Madonna, and even Weird Al Yankovic is in the film himself playing Tony Scotty. Now, I'm not going to say that much of Yankovic's life in this film has been fictionalized, but, well, according to the film, Michael Jackson's Beat It is a parody of Weird Al's Eat It. And Madonna, well, she's, um, well, I don't want to spoil too much for you. I really enjoyed this film. It's filled with fantastic silliness, that's all I can say. A total enjoyable 108 minutes of mindless silliness. The story follows Al from his early childhood, which includes an angry father, his first accordion, his rise to fame, and how Madonna became his girlfriend. Oh, and how he took on Pablo Escobar. I kid you not. Al, well, at least according to this movie, had a pretty amazing life. It's a great film if you just want to sit back and have a good laugh. It it really is. Anyway, that's a film Jeff watched this week, and now... Back to, well, me. I would say my favorite scene of the film has to be the whole stopping on the way home to pick up diapers, high robbing the convenience store, being chased by police and dogs, and being rescued by Holly Hunter. Yes, it's a long scene. Some people say too long, but I enjoyed every minute of the madness. You son of a bitch! Better hurry it up. I'm a Dutch with the wife. You son of a bitch! Come on now. The great Roger Ebert didn't get it. He wrote, And what Raisin Arizona needs more than anything else is more velocity. Here's a movie that stretches out every moment for more than it's worth, until even the moments of inspiration seem forced. Since the basic idea of the movie is a good one, and there are talented people in the cast, what we have here is a film shot down by its own forced and mannered style. And he later wrote, The movie cannot decide if it exists in the real world of trailer parks, 7-Elevens, and Pampers, or in a fantasy world of characters from another dimension. It cannot decide if it's about real people or comic exaggerations. And finally, at the end, he said, 
Raising Arizona is the new work by the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan, whose previous film was the superb thriller Blood Simple. That was a movie that pushed reality as far as it could go within the rigid confines of a well-made thriller. Raising Arizona needs the same kind of restraint. It's all over the map. If the same story had been told straight as a comic slice of life, it might have really worked. I often agree with Ebert, but not here. Whenever I read somebody saying something like, in their last film, I tend to believe that part of their disappointment with the film is because they wanted more of what they got in the previous one. When they didn't get it, they automatically had a negative reaction. The thing is, Roger didn't get the joke. He fails to understand that this is, as Simon Pegg put it, it's a living, breathing Looney Tunes cartoon. When he wrote, it cannot decide if it's about real people or comic exaggerations, I would say, Roger, it's all comic exaggerations. That's the point. The film now ranks 31st on American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Laughs list and 45 on Bravo's 100 Funniest Movies list. So again, Roger, you missed the point. But I'd rather light a candle than curse your darkness. Now, as you know, Evil here and I never go anywhere without there's a purpose. I haven't talked about John Goodman. This was his first film with the Coens, and he's gone on to play in many more, like Barton Fink, The Big Lombowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and Inside Lewin Davis. All fantastic films, by the way. He was born in 1952 in Afton, Missouri. He had a very tough childhood. His father died when he was just two years old, leaving his mother to work as a waitress. He was a loner in school, often bullied because of his weight. He went to Missouri State University on a football scholarship, but after tearing his ACL, he put his full effort into the school theater program. After school, he went to New York to be an actor, and, well, after the usual struggles, made good. He's just fantastic in Raising Arizona. But that's John Goodman. He's fantastic in whatever he's in. So come on down to Unpainted Arizona, where you can get the finest selection in fixtures and appointments for your bathroom, bedroom, boudoir. And if you can find lower prices anywhere, my name ain't Nathan Arizona. Trey Wilson plays the furniture store tycoon Nathan Arizona Sr. He was born in 1948 in Houston, Texas. He's one of those I-know-that-face actors. It's funny, you know, for most of the movie, he plays sort of a comic buffoon. But at the very end, when he's talking to High and Ed in the child's bedroom, he suddenly becomes very sympathetic. It's another example of not just how well the Coens wrote their film, but how well they cast their film. He was horrible. A lone biker of the apocalypse. A man with all the powers of hell at his command. He could turn the day into night and laid the waste to everything in his path. He was especially hard on the little things, the helpless and the gentle creatures. Of course, sometimes there's a problem with one of the actors, like in the case of Randall Tex Cobb. Tex was a martial artist and former professional boxer who went into acting. In 1983, he had a major role in the Gene Hackman film Uncommon Valor. 
He's appeared in numerous films and television series, usually as the villain or the henchman. He apparently was a problem on the set. At one point, Cobb told Joel, You're working with a professional athlete. Try to keep your instructions simple. One of the biggest problems with Tex is that he had never rode a motorcycle before, and he had a problem hitting his marks, including driving into the hole that the convicts had climbed out of. When they needed Cobb to come back to do some reshoots, his agent demanded double the price, figuring they couldn't get anybody else that looks like him to play the part. And the production was forced to pay it. Joel noted that he's less an actor than a force of nature. I don't know if I'd rush headlong into employing him for a future film. The last actor I'm going to talk about is the actor who played Nathan Jr. Or High Jr. Or Ed Jr. Or Gale Jr. Or Glenn Jr. He's played by T.J. Coon Jr., Originally, they were looking for twins, as films often do, to play the toddler. But when the casting director saw TJ, he knew he was right. For the other babies, they had a couple of requirements. One, they wouldn't cry when mother walked away. And two, they weren't walking yet. Many children were turned away once they got up on two feet and started to walk around. I think I read they used 15 babies for the scene in which High picks one out of the bedroom. Now, speaking of that scene where High is choosing a baby, that always confused me. I get it now, High is trying to pick one out, but when I first saw it, and even now, it doesn't come off that way. I'm like, what are you doing, High? Just take one and move on. Well, they, they started crying, and, and they were all over me. It was kind of horrifying, honey. Let me in. Of course they cried, baby. Cried. Well, I know that. Another thing I really enjoy in this movie is the little touches. Like after the two men escape from prison, they go into a gas station restroom, and on the door is a little tribute to one of my favorite films, Dr. Strangelove. So I've expressed my love of this motion picture, but do others think the same? As always, I turn to Rotten Tomatoes. It gets an 85% audience score. And quickly, you know, I don't usually pay attention to the critic score, but it gets a 90%, so... Take that, Roger. Alan B. gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and he wrote, I love this movie. So many classic performances and scenes. Dozens and dozens of quotable lines. Son, you got a panty on your head. I agree, Alan. There are so many lines I like to uh, quote from this movie. Jill R. gave it 4.5 stars, and she wrote, A totally original, wacky, great movie. This is very funny, well-written with terrific acting. Also, this is one of the most unique films I've ever seen. Overall, this is an extremely entertaining and fun movie. Grade A. Grade A indeed, Miss Jill. You're on the money when you say one of the most unique films. But, you know, not everybody agrees. David L. gave it only two stars, and he wrote, Watching Raising Arizona once again cemented for me that I am not a fan of the Coen brothers. I find most of their movies overrated, and this is one of their absolute worst. The characterization is slim, and the plot is non-existent. The mix of crime and comedy genders fails spectacularly. The film is a typical case of style over substance, as it's well shot and the action scenes are very well executed, but the humor focuses on over-the-top accents and implausible scenarios. 
Hey, David, maybe it's you who are overrated. Do you ever think of that? Yeah. Charlie N. gave it only a half star, and he wrote, This is literally the worst movie I've ever seen. Unless you're a stoner in college or watched this movie in college, you will hate this movie. I'm going to read that again. Unless you are a stoner in college or watched this movie in college. You know, I didn't watch this movie in college. I watched it as an adult, and I liked it. So I think you're wrong. The music in this film was created by Carter Burwell. He's done music for films like Doc Hollywood, The Spanish Prisoner, Bean John Malkovich, The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, and many more. It's a wonderful combination of synth, banjo guitar, juice harp, ukulele, percussion, yodeling, and whistling that clearly enhances the absurdity of the story. The thing is, he almost didn't get the job. According to Burwell on his website, he wrote... When Ethan did call me, he was clearly not convinced that the film and I were a great match. He suggested the film was probably not groovy enough for me. I love the script, but it's true that I have no affinity for country music or other things Western, but I did give it a try. He also said in an interview, I believe while Joe was shooting the movie, he was thinking about yodeling. Joel and Ethan are both into old-timey country music, and Ethan even does yodeling. I give them credit for that because it was a brilliant idea. The music treats the movie like a cartoon. No one really is ever going to get hurt in this movie is what the music tells you. People can fire shotguns at each other, and no one's going to get any more hurt than Bugs Bunny would be in a similar situation. I'll have to say, Carter, that Randall Tex Cobb gets blown into little pieces, but, you know, I'm nitpicking. I love it, yet I haven't seen him give any credit to Pete Seeger, who did a very similar thing in his tune, Goofing Off Sweet. But then again, I've read that this idea has been around for a long time. Raising Arizona ended up making $29.2 million on a budget of $5.5 million. So I call that a success. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, Ladies und Chet, Fräulein, Sally Balls! What good is sitting all alone in your room? Come, hear the music play. A little bit before I go. Back to Roger Ebert. He also complained about the way characters speak in Raising Arizona, commenting on how it was unrealistic. And that may be. But I have a theory about watching films. You need to go in with the mindset that in the world of this movie, this is how things are. You watch accepting the reality of the film. People are the way people are in this world. I don't watch a Bugs Bunny cartoon and say, hey, rabbits don't talk and walk around in two legs. 
I accept the fact that they do, and that's why a Bugs Bunny cartoon can be enjoyable. Even when I watch an Ed Wood movie, I tell myself, as silly as the dialogue is, in Ed's world, this is the way people speak. Okay, the suspension of disbelief is a little tricky in an Ed Wood movie, but you know, you have to try. What's up, Doc? Oh, come on, no rabbit would ever say that. Um, next week, I'm gonna do a film I've never seen before. It's called Cabaret. Yes, I've never seen Cabaret. It's a 1972 film by Bob Fosse, and it stars Liza Minnelli and Michael York. Now listen up, I have a Facebook page. You should join it and leave your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. Why don't you join us? I have a Twitter account, it's at celluloid underscore days, and I post daily on it, usually in the morning. You should follow me there. I'm up to 51 followers. It keeps growing at a tremendous rate. <laughs> Not really, but you know. Hey, you know what? I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. Feel free to email me for any reason, suggestions, criticisms, or even to say hi. I'd appreciate it. And if you could leave me a review at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Hey, thanks for listening. You're wonderful. I'll be back next week with Cabaret. I hope you'll join us. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multipass. You know it's multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can't.